Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So it started with a conversation about an abortion that was provided to a 10-year-old. It's a disgusting, awful story of abuse and of rape. It comes from Ohio, but it ended up in the state of Indiana, where you had a doctor, Caitlin Bernard, performing this abortion, and it made national news. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. But the information getting to the public, well, that's been an interesting question. Was the doctor in this case, Dr. Caitlin Bernard, in the wrong for sharing information with a reporter, as opposed to engaging the confidentiality of a client? The Attorney General of Indiana, Todd Rokita, has spoken uh, about this, has engaged action on this subject, and for his comments in an interview with Jesse Waters on Fox News... You had uh, in Indiana, the Indiana Supreme Court, saying that there was a violation that took place. And the Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission commission saying there was a violation that took place. The Attorney General Todd Rokita disagrees. There was then another conversation that could impact his work as Attorney General. The Attorney General joins us right now. Todd Rokita on the line. It's good to have you, sir. Uh, Give me the elevator pitch of your comments regarding Dr. Bernard and what it is the commission is saying about you and now how you have responded in this disciplinary case. Yeah, hey, thanks, Tony. I appreciate you. I appreciate your show. Hey, look, this was about 16 words a year and a half ago that the left political opponents, the confused quote-unquote media keep wanting to bring up because they don't want to let it die. You know, first of all, this was about patient privacy. And the doctor clearly violated patient privacy when she went to the Indianapolis Star and national news outlets. And her own licensing board found her in violation. So that case is closed. Um, It was an emotional issue for sure. You know, if this was, Tony, about your prostate or something like that, I guarantee you no one would care. Uh, And people have to realize that 20 at any given time at the attorney general's office, there are 20 or so open cases we have against doctors on this very type of issue, this patient privacy issue. So this is something that uh, that we do. Uh, now, uh, some people had a problem, and you know what? I always cooperated with the Disciplinary Commission, always cooperated with the Supreme Court, had a problem with the context uh, of what I said, and, and, you know, and, and, and whether or not it violated or impeded, or I should say, some rules, some rules of process, some rules of court. But what I didn't do was violate anyone's confidentiality. What I didn't do was um, violate any state statute, and I was not fined. And that's what I had said later after the court came out with its opinion, agreeing with the court. So, you know, I, and, and, but the news media wants to conflate all that, and the left wants to conflate all that to, to say that, oh, he admitted what he did was, did was wrong, and then he refuted it. No. Well, let me, a let rule, me give a, you— A rule uh, of court is not a state statute, is not a fine, it's not these other things. And so I, would, I made that clear, and, 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 and here we be. Let me, let me give you, though, the, the, the commentary here, sir. The argument is the disciplinary commission 
uh, went to unseal the agreement that, that you had made, and this is how they stated, quote, respondents' actions flouted the authority of the court, called into question the sincerity of respondents' assertions to the court in his conditional agreement and affidavit, and caused damage to the public's perception of the integrity and justness of the attorney discipline system. That's the argument that they're making. Are you contending here that their argument is purely political? Uh, it's poli- it's something. It's something that's wrong and not right. Listen, if if anyone's in, impeding the integrity of the court, it's news media. It's 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 political opponents who want this story to never end and want to make me say that what I said a year and a half ago was false. And Tony, you make this reference about uh, the TV series all the time. There are four lights. I will never say there's five. I will never say there's three. There are four. And, and, and so well, I stand behind exactly what I said. I always will, and I always be transparent with the people of Indiana like I have here. Um, you know, the, this commission, which is an arm of the Supreme Court, is supposed to be, is supposed to be an arbiter of the truth. It's supposed to be a truth finder. It's not supposed to be on one side uh, or the other. And, and to the extent people are having less confidence in the system, it's because of the weaponization that's allowed to happen, uh, not only here in these kinds of cases, but across the country uh, with the judicial system. So I think we have to be very careful in Indiana to say, hey, we're not going to let this our system get weaponized by special political interest who never want this issue to go away. So let's so let's take a step back. Talking to the Attorney General of Indiana, Todd Rokita, are you stating that your comments about the decision and your deal with the Supreme Court, that your comments after the fact are not violating the agreement that you were discussing? Absolutely not. In fact, the, the, the public knows, as far as I'm concerned, the public knows uh, the the entire contents of the agreement uh, already. So I'm not objecting to if if you want to release this these, this document and agreement now, which would be the first time in the history of the court that we can tell. Uh, but fine. And in fact, what I'm saying is to make sure that this commission has the confidence of the people of Indiana and all the attorneys that it regulates make the deliberations concerning me all public as well. Not just ones in the past, but but you know, as, if this goes forward, what whatever's going to happen, make this make this uh, available to everybody, including their deliberations. This is a commission that's not elected by anybody. They've never met in public, uh, and 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 here they are, um, basically inserting themselves in news cycles. And to me, that's far from being um, the arbiters of truth. And it's gotten themselves into the, this political mess. What our filings have done, um, our recent response to the court has said, we want to disentangle you, the commission, from all these things. To get back to uh, going after attorneys who have stolen clients' money, uh, who have gotten DUIs, who are driving around drunk, who are doing these other things uh, that are a, ser- a serious impediment to the, ju- ju- the judicial process. Are you concerned that with this conversation, other conversations that you've had, Attorney General Rokita, um, that this commission 
could move to take away your law license and therefore effectively ending your career as attorney general? Listen, this case is is closed, and uh, no. I mean, it would be unprecedented. It would be completely out of line. We're talking about 16 words from 1.5 years ago. A year and a half ago, we're talking. We're not talking about me uh, being drunk, groping women. We're not talking about me stealing clients' money. We're not talking about those things uh, that you do get your license suspended for, and rightfully so. We're talking about um, matters of style. And again, with a news media and and a left political opponents who just can't stand that. I am suing Biden about the border as an attorney general that I promised to go after China and have ending the last Confucius Institute in Indiana at Valparaiso. But you're University. saying, and I don't mean to interrupt, I want to make sure I'm clear. You're saying that you're talking about the settlement of this issue because that's what they're saying is the issue. There's nothing there and that everything that comes after that is political. I mean, that's that is the crux of your argument. Yeah, I don't know what you mean by nothing there, but again, everything that is substantive in that agreement that I know about, as far as I'm concerned, has already been made public, either through the Supreme Court's own opinion, which for the first time cited the contents of a of a conditional agreement, um, or just through other news media accounts, uh, or what we had filed in response. Look, you know, I, I, I met the Disciplinary Commission, Tony. I met him halfway, if not more, and said, you know what? Okay. You know, in terms of a, of a rule of court, in terms of a rule of process, you know, maybe someone could have found that what I said on TV a year and a half ago for those 16 words uh, did not meet standard. Um, but it certainly did not break anyone's confidentiality, and it certainly did not break any state statutes, and I certainly wasn't fined for it. And, and so let's get beyond this. I'll stand up and I'll be responsible and I'll I'll meet you guys halfway, if not more, and we'll and we'll move down the road. Now, some don't want that. Some don't want that to be over because, like I said, before you interjected, of all the other stuff we're doing, I, they think I have to be stopped somehow, some way. And 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 that's just not the case. I'm not going to be stopped. I'm not going to be shut up. I'm not going to be silenced. The disciplinary commission recently wanted me to have a gag order. Where have you heard gag order before? <laughs> you know from an arm of the judiciary, but that's the place that they have found themselves and that they're putting Indiana. And I'm just going to continue on representing voters, representing taxpayers, representing the people who put me in office to do the very thing that I'm doing. That is the attorney general of Indiana, Todd Rokita. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We're going to follow this case as it progresses without question. If you ask, by the way, just so I'm on the, on the same page with you always, I thought that the doctor was flat out wrong in engaging this conversation and in violating the privacy of a child. And I still believe that to this day. I'm Tony Katz. Good things happening in the state of Indiana and a record amount of business coming to the state of Indiana. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. We're talking in the billions of dollars. It's wonderful news. It's terrific news. Can we keep it up? And is there something we can be doing statewide 
to be even more aggressive about attracting more businesses here. And as I always discuss it, it's not just about the high tech. It is about all the tech, low tech and high tech, the manufacturing. We need it all and entertainment. I could prove the need for entertainment in every city or region of Indiana. It is extremely important because without it, without it, you cannot really make the other things work for the people. You're going to hear me say this a lot. Our state clearly can build a business. It can attract business. But if you don't have the entertainment to go along with it, it's going to be very hard to get the people to work in those jobs. And the last I checked, you're going to need the people to work in those jobs. Gary Dick joins us from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. Uh, you can find him personally at Gary Dick, G-E-R-R-Y, at Gary Dick on the Twitter box. $28.7 billion in commitments. Uh, that's, a, that's a lot of good money coming to the state of Indiana, Gary Dick. It is. And uh, a big spotlight put on the state. You know, Tony, the year before last, 2022, I think the number was something like 22 or $23 billion in uh, uh, commitments from companies uh, around the, really around the globe to invest in Indiana, those already here or those uh, looking to locate in Indiana. And a lot was made at that time of that big number, and how could that be topped? And it wasn't a big way. As you said, nearly $29 billion, that represents potential investment, you know, planned investment from more than 200 companies. And it runs the gamut. You know, we saw life sciences investment. We saw, you know, a lot of investment, as we've talked about, in the uh, the electrification of the auto industry. Um, uh, Stellantis, uh, Samsung, SDI, GM, uh, a number of companies investing big time in Indiana. So from a number standpoint uh, and from an attraction, a success rate standpoint, 2023 was uh, was a really good year for the state. And if you talk to folks at the Indiana Economic Development Corporation and elsewhere around the state, they say 24 is shaping up, the pipeline is shaping up to be yet another good year. So some momentum. It's certainly something that Brad Chambers, uh, the former Secretary of Commerce, is going to utilize in his run for, for, for governor and taking credit for these things. The other, I think, big story is how Indiana is again ranked amongst the best states to start a business. Is this a taxation conversation or is this a regulation conversation or is this a talent conversation? You know, I think all of the above. And you're referencing Forbes. They came out with their list of the best uh, best states to start a business. Indiana actually fell, but they were number one last year. Indiana was number one last year. This year they just fell one spot there. So they're number two in the country, Indiana is, in terms of the best states to start a business. They look at a number of metrics, uh, Tony, in this uh, study. Look at uh, uh, the environment for business growth, uh, the financial environment for entrepreneurs, cost of living, uh, regulation, you know, a number of factors that contribute to that. And, you know, as I look at it uh, and, and where Indiana stacks up when it comes to, to a, uh, a business-friendly or business development standpoint, you know, the lists come and go in, in Indiana and other states are ranked in various places. But I put a lot of stock in what I hear, uh, what you hear from CEOs and site selection consultants and those people who are really actively involved in locating companies and locating a big investment. Not what they're saying on camera, but what they're saying behind the camera. And I can tell you, 
that, uh, you know, time and time again, the reaction I get from CEOs and those looking to locate or relocate or maybe put a big investment is the business-friendly environment in, in Indiana outpaces uh, certainly neighboring states and is among uh, the better environments uh, in the country. You would think that every state would be a welcoming business environment, but that's apparently not the case. I mean, uh, not to pile on to Illinois because we tend to do that. but Oh, do it. Pile on to Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> and the bears well, suck. Talk, talk Go on. Folks who, yeah, who are looking to locate or relocate, and they cite that as an example uh, in how there's, there's somewhat of an anti-business uh, attitude or environment, and it's quite the opposite here, and I think it's being reflected in this uh, this Forbes study, that uh, Forbes report that just came out. Talking to Illinois hater Gary Dick from <laughs> InsideIndianaBusiness.com. No, is that not the way I say it? It's not yeah, the way? exactly. Oh, okay. Thought, I thought and I had that right. The got beat on, fri- on uh, Friday night, too, so. Uh, talk to me about this this story that has made a lot of noise uh, about how um, Indy has topped missed Midwestern cities in three-year GDP growth. You compare Indianapolis and really the metro, so not just Indy proper, to other areas, Milwaukee, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Columbus, Kansas City, St. Louis. We're up 8.4% with $12.1 billion worth of impact. And the next closest one... Um, is is nine point four billion out of St. Louis? Have we figured out how this number comes together? Yeah, I I, I, I was surprised when I saw that number, especially Tony and you and I talked a little bit about it. But the IU Kelly School of Business came out a few weeks ago and talked about a, a competitiveness uh, uh, issue for, in particular, for Indianapolis because of the kinds of jobs uh, attracted here in terms of uh, perhaps not being as high wage as some of the other uh, jobs. But this report that came out, as you said, Pierce cities in the Midwest, Minneapolis, uh, St. Louis, Cincinnati, uh, you can go and go on down the list. Indianapolis was substantially higher. The Indy metro area substantially higher. And I think it's reflective of some of the life sciences, manufacturing uh, investment uh, that uh, has come and is coming to uh, central Indiana as well. But a very positive sign heading into 2024 as you try to prop up, uh, if you will, the business case for Indianapolis and central Indiana. Don't get me wrong, guys. I love this number. My thanks to Gary Dick for joining us from InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I love the number for the Indianapolis Metro, and it's good for all of us. It's good for the totality of, of the state of Indiana. But I think that we have to answer that question to understand how to grow other parts of the state. Is it Indianapolis doing something? Well, you can argue it's the capital of the state and already has football and it's got the basketball. It's going to have the, the, the soccer with Indy 11 and that new stadium. So uh, by nature, more people are drawn there. But if indeed it's the state and the, the level of regulation, the lack thereof, the, the tax uh, conversation, how low it is, uh, how friendly we are to business, well, then we can engage opportunities for more entertainment in other parts of the state, we can engage the growth in a better way. I think it is the latter. I don't think it has anything to do with something Indianapolis is doing specifically. It is just the luck they get from being the capital. I think the opportunities are there because as a state, we're a pretty smart state when it comes to the business stuff. Now we just need to be much more aggressive about it. And on the entertainment side, 
because that's what drives people. It makes them excited about moving there. Understand why the business wants to move there, yes. What makes the people want to be a part of the business? It's having the whole life outside of work. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. So this economy of ours seems to want to do well. That doesn't mean that it's doing well. But Tony, the jobs numbers were up. Well, yeah, but they've also been revised downward. Tony, the gas prices are down. Yes, that part is absolutely true. But you still don't feel a level of of relief. You don't feel a level of, huh, all right. We're through this. And the question is, why not? Why don't we feel the relief? Is it possible that what we're being told doesn't match up to the reality? Oh, sure. You can take a look at all the indicators you want and say, my goodness, things are better, but not in our own pocketbooks. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Become a subscriber. I'd greatly appreciate it. TonyKatz.com. That is Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. He is the guy I go to when nothing makes sense whatsoever. Let me give you this this one-two punch uh, right here. The payrolls in December increased by 216,000, which is better than I think the 170,000 that was expected. That's headline number one. Here's headline number two, right? It's the shot and it's the chaser, Dr. Will. Initial U.S. employment reports overstated by 439,000 jobs in 2023, which means that when they put out a jobs report, sir, they go back two months later and they're like, you know what? We said it was 150,000 jobs. It was only 120,000. We said it was 210,000 jobs. It was only 174,000. They were off by nearly 450,000 jobs. Talk to me about the jobs numbers you saw from that December report first. Is this continuing good news for a better economy? Well, okay. First of all, you you stole my thunder. Second of all, you didn't read the memo from cringe John Pierre this morning to the media. Uh, Let me take a look at this here. Uh, Remember to tell everyone about the 216,000 jobs. Do not look at revisions. Do not look at the details of government and healthcare. Ignore those and focus on the headline like we tell you to do every month. Well, we're going to ignore that and we're going to look at the details. You mentioned it. The down revision. So let's do some simple math. So hopefully people can do this if they didn't go to a bad public school. 216,000 new jobs. Subtract 71,000 for down revisions, and subtract 90,000 for government and healthcare, which is government-induced hiring. That brings us to 55,000. 55,000 new jobs last month. That's it. That is nothing to brag about. And like you mentioned, 439,000 revisions down for the year. That's not even for the whole year. We don't have the December revisions. It could be over half a million jobs. Tony, we lied to people last month. You and I were bragging about how great the jobs report was. You said, look, you don't want to get bare bad news. If it's good, it's good. We told the world it was good. We were wrong. Wait a second. I asked you what the report was. I'll say that you were wrong. But I think the bigger question here is, in an average year, when we see 439,000 revisions, 
what's usual? What's normal for the number of revisions that take place? I mean, revisions do take place. You get a little more fine-tuned in the number after you have some time to look at the data. Is this way out of whack or just slightly out of whack? That's a great question. And let me tell you, I did some digging on that exact question. So you got the question, but you didn't steal my thunder on it. I looked back and found that the Philadelphia Fed reported in Q2, just quarter two of 2022, 1.1 million jobs too many. They overreported. They had her down revised by 1.1 million just in the second quarter. I went back and looked. This is a modern era problem. This is a Biden era problem. We didn't have these massive revisions pre-Biden. I'm not saying this is a conspiracy. I'm not in favor of the Illuminati because I'm trying to get in, of course. But I'm telling you, there is something going on here and the data is false and it's a serious problem. And it's been a recent phenomenon. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of of Indianapolis. Uh, This brings us to where this economy is is going and a lot of people want to talk about the the soft landing this is janet yellen the treasury secretary having that conversation is the, uh... it is very rare to bring down um inflation as much as we have without seeing a weakening in the job market but we have 23 months in a row unemployment under 40 percent haven't seen that in 50 years so the soft landing, did it happen? I, what we're seeing now, I think we can describe as a soft landing, and my hope is that it will, it will continue. So that's the Treasury Secretary announcing soft landing. Look, I want it. I don't want the, the, the recession. I don't want the inflation, sir. I don't want any of that. But that's Janet Yellen on CNN stating unequivocally that the soft landing has come. Is she right? Possibly right, but totally false in who she's giving credit to. When she says we, 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 I'm tired of us talking about the administration and the government. The fact is that we have 8.7 million people holding more than one job right now. So she's talking about a strong labor market. That's the highest number in the history of our country. 8.7 million people are holding more than one job. So don't give me this we, we, we. This is just like we talk about the battle between Jerome Powell and Biden. It's a battle between Biden and capitalism. Biden is bad for the economy. Capitalism is good. The reason we're having a soft landing, Tony, the reason the economy is looking decent is because the government is too stupid to regulate AI. This year, AI is going to generate 10% of all data in the economy. Cybersecurity is growing by leaps and bounds. Innovation. Look at Lilly. Lilly is waiting for the stupid FDA to approve their Alzheimer's drug. They announced Lilly Direct recently. This is revolutionizing the pharma industry with telehealth, cost-cutting, removing the middleman. There's a lot of innovation going on, and the economy is doing well in spite of Biden. Not because of him. It's in spite of him. Well, let's talk about something that's doing well. This is the energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, talking about gas prices. You know, for us in the U.S., the gas prices, for example, are at 309 uh, today, 3.089, something like that, Um, more than $1.93 lower than the peak after Putin's war, Uh, 30 states in 30 states, the average is less than $3 a gallon. So we are, so far, uh, we aren't seeing the price per barrel or the impact at the pump. 
Now, you and I have discussed the price for barrel, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. And the price for barrel issue is because China is utilizing much less oil. They're doing much less production, which is a big conversation about this world recession, recession in China and their economic issues in Europe, et cetera. But in my beloved Indiana, yours too, you drive down the road and gas is indeed under $3 a gallon. So they get to take some credit for that. Uh, no, even no, if you're no, saying it's undeserved, no. but they can take the credit. No, they can't take the credit because when they came in office, it was under $2 a gallon. They shot it up over $4 a gallon and they bring it down. How does this math work? How gullible are people that they think, let's make it really, really bad. And then when we improve it a little, we'll take credit for the improvement. But please don't look at the bad. This is like the revision in the employment numbers. Look at the headline today. Please don't look at the last year and a half when we've had to revise it by over a million jobs. This is totally bogus. The recession globally that's happening in China and Germany is pulling down the gas prices after they had already jacked it up and they came into office, it was lower. That's just the reality of the situation. The policies of this administration are destroying the economy and the great innovation of capitalism in our corporate America is what's growing the economy. And I hope the capitalism wins and Biden loses. So you this this falls in line with a conversation you've had consistently that that this economy has been a, a, a conversation of Biden versus Powell and who wins this fight. This is a comment that I, I, I got uh, on our conversation. Uh, the economy is outperforming all expectations, and it's because of the positive impact from the Inflation Reduction Act. And a president who, despite MAGA theater, is a good and decent man who believes in smart policies. Elect a president who doesn't believe in democracy, and you end up with the chaos that was 2020 and January 6th. I bring this up to you, sir, not to get your political perspective on this, but but rather this seems to be, when we have conversations about the economy, where people go, it's a retreat to political fiefdoms and ideology as opposed to the data itself. Is your argument regarding Biden and the economy, is that your political belief or is that the data that you see and you are able to interpret? It's just factual data. I mean, first of all, that statement is a lie. The Inflation Reduction Act was an Inflation Creation Act. Even the most liberal of economists admit that. So that's just factually wrong. The data tells us that private industry AI is growing at 10% in the economy. That's private industry. That's not the government. Like I said, thank God the government's too stupid to regulate AI or they would shut it down. The things that Lilly is doing, CrowdStrike, you know, you name Adobe, Salesforce, NVIDIA, What those companies are doing are revolutionary. Tony, I could give you stories of what insurance companies are doing with AI to improve the efficiency of claim services, to give you cheaper rates on your policies. I I have lots of those stories I can share with you. I have them right here, right now. Those people are doing great things. It's not Biden. And people that throw in the politics of MAGA are trying to distract you from his bad policies. It, it, so how often do you run into this? You're an economist at a university, University of Indianapolis, right there in, in the heart of, of the city. Do you run into amongst, never mind a student set, but amongst a professional set? And I don't need you to out people or, or, or put yourself at risk per se, but do you run into people who mistake their ideology for data, for fact, for research, for 
for um, for policy? Yes. And there's a there's a phrase and I forget at the top of my head what it is exactly. But I can tell you of people that are even liberal politically in the university setting who have to bite their tongue and shut up because there's a political narrative that occurs that contradicts the facts. Objective, even liberal, objective people see data and what they see is different than what they're told to say and told to speak and told to support. That's a common narrative that we see in the university world. I have a lot of colleagues at my university who are very good at speaking the truth and we don't get in that much trouble, but I know other people who are are biting their tongue, not saying what they know is factually true. Uh, it, 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 it seems to be a constant, constant refrain and certainly seems to be constant that people want to utilize uh, their politics as a way of proving every other data point. But we get back to, to where we're going and this idea of the soft landing, which would mean we are able to lower inflation and get out of this moment without recession. The Fed had indicated that they were looking at three rate cuts, three interest rate cuts for 2024. But then a look at the minutes of that meeting contradicts that and says, well, we hope, but we're not sure we're going to be able to do it. The minutes say that everything we said out loud isn't necessarily true. Where are we feeling or what indicators should we be looking at to see whether or not the soft landing can actually occur? You know what? I, I want us to stop looking at the Fed minutes. I want us to stop looking at the, the reports coming out of the BEA and the BLS.gov. I want us to look at the economy because that's going to tell us the soft landing or not. The federal government's doing a terrible job. The first two quarters, I'm sorry, the first two months of this fiscal year, $164 billion deficit. That's a $2 trillion for the year. We're forecasted to have a $2 trillion deficit. The government is doing nothing but harming the economy with that. It's the capitalism that's going to make us have a soft landing. It's innovation. I'm hoping that the government fights. We have a n- nice debate and it gets ugly for this election year because if they're busy fighting, they're not going to mess with the economy, which improves our chances of a soft landing because innovation will win the day. I sincerely believe that. I know it sounds abstract, but I really believe that. And I give you information company after company after company that's doing great things. Well, if you keep telling the government to regulate AI, uh, that's you got to stop that. Don't get yes. ideas. You got to stop it. Just like, thank goodness they didn't regulate the internet when it was developed. We wouldn't have the internet today. Don't give them ideas. I'm trying. Help me help you. That's all I'm asking for. Doctor. Sorry. I apologize. Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. So we've got a spending deal, kind of, maybe. I assume it's going uh, to go through. It really is up to Republicans. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. It's not that you won't have some Democrats coming across on on this one because Republicans are not getting everything uh, that they wanted. I think the key is going to be where they feel they are on the border and border funding. Now, this is a $1.59 trillion deal that's going on. $886 billion for defense spending. And then you have $704 in non-defense spending. And then you've got a $69 billion side deal that's adjustments 
that's going to go toward non-defense domestic spending. Um, This whole deal has to be, because this whole deal starts with a a bit of framework that was already in in place, and they were working around that. And they're also trying to, with the uh, extensions that they've done, they've got one coming up uh, January 19th, another one February 2nd, and now they're trying to avert government shutdown, which I, I don't get worked up by. I I can't get myself to be worked up by them not doing their job. It just seems crazy to me. Seems seems flat out uh, uh, silly. But the the so that's where a lot of this framework already is. But the issue here is going to be border. That's what is going to in the House especially be the issue of getting something passed. You already have Chip Roy of Texas saying, quote, we must make funding for federal government operations contingent on the president signing HR2 or its functional equivalent into law and stopping the flow across our border, which means you could have Republicans saying, we're not we're not voting for this. You don't have enough for the border here. Sorry, Mike Johnson, we don't have enough. We don't, we don't have it, which uh, why'd you bring in Mike Johnson as speaker then? Why'd you have to get rid of Kevin McCarthy if this was going to be the case? Also, remember the majority is ever shrinking. You got rid of Santos. Kevin McCarthy resigned, which, sorry, that was a blank you uh, to, to the Republicans. It was what it was. I would say that to the man. And Steve Scalise is dealing with a medical issue, and so he's out. So your majority is like, what, one, two people? Yeah, it's going to be tight. And then there's the question of how it's going to do in the Senate. We'll see that. But first, where's the House on this? And Um, You don't have some of these Republicans. You just don't. And they're not wrong. The border is everything. Find everything from me at TonyKatz.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.